the book of Ecclesiastes keeps raising this question. You know, vanity, vanity is all is vanity, life is short, and uh, so what should we do? James picks up on that in James chapter 4, about verse 14. He says, he says something like, uh, we, we ought to be careful to say we're going to go here, we're going to do this, we're going to make money, we're going to spend a year here. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. And he says, life is just a mist or a vapor that's here for a little while and then it's gone. And I think I've probably told you that I, it's a very difficult word to translate that, that life is a vapor, life is a mist, life is a puff of smoke. And the best word I use to translate it is, but it's, it's not easily spelled, P-H-H-T-T-T or something like that. But I think that's the idea that, that life is just, and, and then it's gone, even a long life. And so when he talks about the kind of suffering they might be enduring, it, it might go on for some lengthy period of time, but in relatively speaking, it's short, it's brief. And Paul says it in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, something like, Our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. That, that when you look at your life and how brief it is, even if you live to be old, and then you look at some period of suffering within that, within that longer life, in the larger scheme of things, it's, it's very brief. And, and somehow this is where he begins to, to try to offer them some comfort in the midst of it. In which you rejoice in all these things he's already talked about, this new birth and the inheritance and that you're being kept. Although if it's necessary for a little while uh, for you to suffer, he says, having suffered in various trials, verse 7, in order that the testing of your faith, more precious than gold, which is destroyed, but when it is tested by fire, it was found unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's God's purpose in suffering. That's important to know. And, and God's purpose, uh, God works his purposes through suffering, I said. But here, specifically, suffering has a purpose. And it purifies our faith. And, and the image he uses is what fire does to go, this smelting process. Now, I'm not a smelter, nor the son of a smelter. So, I, so I, and I've never did gold to remove the impurities. But I'm told... This is how impurities are removed from gold. That there are impurities and it, it's heated. And then the impurities rise to the top and they can just be removed. And Peter says this is what suffering, this is what persecution, this is what this can do for your faith. Our faith has impurities. Um, we're given to slander and gossip. We're given to a lack of faith. We trust ourselves. We trust our fame. We trust our riches. We our faith has impurities. And these impurities keep us from experiencing the, the, the greatest fullness of God's glory in our lives. So it's helpful to us for these impurities to be removed. And how are they removed? Not through God blessing us with what we see as good things. It comes through suffering, through trials. That's when... It's, it's as if our faith is the gold and the fire is our suffering. And when, when these sufferings come, they sort of heat our faith in a way and the impurities can be removed. James says the same thing in James chapter 1. 
He says, consider it all joy when you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, let endurance have its perfect work so that you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, that's the way James opens his letter, talking about suffering, much like 1 Peter. But there again, it's God's purpose in suffering that we can find joy in our suffering because we know that God is doing something in, in that suffering that can't be done any other way. It would be a great and glorious thing if our faith could be purified through just pure blessing, through, through God granting us good things, that our faith would be purified. But it just doesn't work that way for us. And our, our faith can only be purified by suffering. And so even when we suffer, it's not that we're, you know, I would, I would never sign up for it. I'm not looking for suffering. I'm not hoping for suffering. It's going to find us, though. You don't have to go looking for it. It will find you. And when it does, and you find yourself going through it, it's not that you're grateful that you're suffering, but you can be grateful that you know God does things through suffering that can't be done any other way. And it's a beautiful image here of the purification of faith. And, and I'm trying to think, what's more valuable, what's more precious in the world than faith that has been tested, demonstrated to be authentic and purified? There's nothing more beautiful than that. There's nothing more valuable than that in the world. And, and this is God's purpose uh, in suffering. And, this, and there is where we can find joy in the midst of it. Now, on in this verse 7, which I read, he said, Now, when it is tested, it is found, your faith is tested. It is found unto praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So we can, we can find joy because of God's purpose in our suffering. But I think there's also something here about God's praise in our suffering. That, that when our faith is demonstrated to be authentic, when Jesus appears, he will give to us, look at the, what he says, praise and glory and honor. That to, to the one who endures suffering, demonstrates the authenticity, the genuineness of their faith by enduring. At the appearing of Jesus, we will receive praise and glory and honor. Now, you, you need to realize the people that he's writing to here, they're experiencing scorn and shame and dishonor because of their identification with Jesus. That's what they're experiencing in this piece of the Roman Empire because of their faith. Here's the promise that although Caesar may dishonor and shame you uh, and taunt you, the Lord of all creation, when he appears, will give you glory and praise and honor. And, and uh, Peter, I, I think, believes this will give us some joy even in the midst of our trials, our, our difficult circumstances, our suffering. Now that sounds like the kind of thing we're supposed to give to Jesus, right? Glory and praise and honor, isn't that what we're supposed to give to God? But here he says that's what he will give to us at his appearing. But, but it's a pretty, it's a, it's a, I like the image of faith that has been purified. Think about faith that has been tested and purified, and now it, it, its beauty will reflect back 
And if, if, if our faith has been tested and it's polished, if he gives us praise and honor and glory, that praise and honor and glory can be reflected back to him who has given it to us. It, it, it's just a beautiful image that I think Peter uh, is painting. And then uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, we can find joy in our suffering because of God's promise of future salvation. In verse 8 he says, whom, although not seeing, you love, uh, to whom now not seeing, you believe, uh, and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The same faith that it takes to love a God that you have not seen, it is the faith it requires to endure suffering and find joy because you believe that there's something better ahead. You see the comparison there? You've not seen Jesus. We might sing a song that says, I've seen Jesus. And everybody knows what we mean by that. But you've not seen Jesus. And maybe you've got a story about you had a vision or something. I've never had one of those where I actually saw Jesus. But I knew that was Jesus and that's what he looked like. My faith is in a God that I have not seen. John says God is spirit. I've never seen God, and yet I believe in God. That same faith that it takes to believe in a God that you have not seen is the kind of faith it takes to have hope in, the in a future that will be better than your present suffering. If you can believe in a God that you've not seen, then you can believe in a better day ahead despite the fact that you might be suffering now. It's the same kind of faith. To see something or believe in something that you've not yet seen. And this promise of future salvation. That we will receive the end of our faith. The salvation of our, our souls. The salvation of our whole lives. Um, this, is, this, is, this is what we have faith in. That even though things may be tragic at the moment. And we've seen and in my own experience, just in the last few months, not, not in the first level of my family. We, we've not suffered in the, since December. But just in people that I know, students, Jeremy Freeman at, at First Baptist Newcastle, and his, son, his sons were in the car accident on December the 19th, I think. And his son Caleb was really, really seriously injured. I, I mean, could have died, survived it. Then it was didn't seem very likely that he was going to have much function of his body and now I see these images on Facebook and he's he's moving and he's speaking and just a remarkable story but the first time that I was working through this first Peter stuff in December I was thinking through it a lot at that time that had happened on December the 19th and then like December the 29th another former, former student of mine Drew Wright who's a youth minister at First Baptist Jinx his wife was pregnant. I mean, they're just young people, about younger than Jerry. And his wife was pregnant, and she had a blood clot. And now they, she was about, I don't know, seven months along, something like that. She had a blood clot, and she died. And they were able to, to take the baby, and they named, named him Asa, and he lived about a week. And the baby died. And Drew, and now a very young man, going through this. 
And then my friend just about what, a month ago, Shane Hall at uh, First Southern, had been at First Lawton, had been a good friend of mine since I came to Oklahoma. All, all of these things were just simmering at, at the time when I was getting ready to teach First Peter for the first time. We just, that, that's just my small little world. And, and I bet I could go around table to table and you could talk about either your own suffering or the suffering of people you know well. I mean, there's plenty of suffering around. And, and here is an expression that reminds us that no matter how difficult the, the present becomes, there is this promise of future salvation. And it's not that there's no hope in the present. There is. We have this living hope in the present. We have the presence of Christ with us. And yet to know that this won't last forever. And that there's, there's a, we, can, we can rejoice because of this future salvation that's promised us. And then 10 through 12, I'm just going to do really quickly here. But the best way I know how to summarize 10 through 12 is um, what a time to be alive. Despite the suffering that I've just talked about. But, and this is the paradox of the Christian life. I mean, on the one hand, you have suffering and persecution and challenge. But on, on the other hand, there's great rejoicing. That's, that's the paradox of living the Christian life in this world. So he's talking about all this suffering. But then in verse 10, he says, Now concerning which salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace coming upon you sought and searched and investigated carefully into who or what kind of time, you know, the, the, the Spirit of Christ was indicating by prophesying the sufferings of Christ. That... The prophets were investigating everything as carefully as possible to try to discern something about who the Messiah was and when he would come. I mean, I could just see Elijah, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah. I could just picture these prophets. And they're scanning the stars in the sky. They're looking at world events. They're looking at everything they can possibly examine for any indication about who the Messiah was and when the Messiah was coming. I mean, you might think they're just scouring the Bible, but they, they're writing the Bible. There's no Isaiah for Isaiah to read and try to figure out who the Messiah is. Now, they might have been looking at the law, the first five books of the law, but... But they don't have all the Bible we have to try to figure out who and when and what and where. So they're looking, they're searching and investigating everywhere. And, and, and then he says, so the prophets are searching about who or what kind of time. And then in verse 12, to whom it was revealed that they were, they were ministering things, these things, not for themselves. Uh, but, and, and then at the end he says, into which angels long to just catch a glimpse. So prophets were investigating everything carefully, trying to figure out who the Messiah was and when he was coming. Angels longed to look in and see something of this time of salvation. And, and you know what? Peter says, you all live in the time. The prophets were searching everything. Angels longed to see it. You live in it. And here we are 2,000 years later. We still live in it. We live in the age of salvation. The kingdom of God has come. We live in this time when, when we experience all the, the blessings of the kingdom of God have come. Not fully. There's still something left. There's still a not yet to our salvation. 
But what a time to be alive. What if you'd lived prior to the coming of the Messiah? What if you'd lived in this time of intense investigation and searching, trying to figure out who and when? Angels even long just to catch a glimpse of what we experience. What a time to be alive, Peter says. Don't let your present sufferings blind you to the reality that we live in the most privileged and blessed time to be alive. This time that the kingdom of God has come. What a time to be alive. Now that's, with all of this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the thing in the midst of, and, and don't underestimate Peter's circumstances here. I don't think his audience, I don't think they're dying, and they're not dying yet because of their faith. The persecution where they are was, was not the same as in Rome, but Peter was in Rome. And it's important to realize where he is when he's saying these kinds of things. He's facing death because of his identification with Christ. And he ends up dying about 67. So he writes this sometime before that. But he's enduring that kind of situation. And yet he can say, what a time to be alive. And, uh, so this is, this is his doxology. Now we move into the actual body, beginning at 1.13 uh, and going through chapter 2, verse 3 is the first section that we're going to see for how far we can get through here. Before. We're supposed to stop at 5, what? 5.30. And y'all are going to get through the line in like a warp speed, and, uh, and, then, and then we'll continue on. But beginning at 1.13 and going through chapter 2, verse 3, he sort of turns now. Uh, to talk about uh, how we ought to live in light of these realities that he's discussed in the doxology, in the light of the fact that we are exiles, we're immigrants and refugees in a land that is not our own. So beginning at verse 13 and going through chapter 2, verse 3, there are five uh, commands. There are only, now it looks like maybe more because translations will make things look like commands that aren't actually commands, but there are five commands in this section. So let's just highlight them before we jump in. In 1.13, it is to live with hope. And hope is a, is a major theme in 1 Peter, if you've not picked that out yet. Uh, in verses 14 through 16, actually uh, the command is in verse 15, um, be holy in all conduct. So live in holiness. So live in hope, verse 13. Live in holiness, verse 15. Uh, verse 17 is the third command. Live in reverent fear of God. He says in verse 17, And if you call Father, the one who judges impartially according to the work of each one, conduct the time of your immigration in fear. We might say in reverent fear. So that's three commands. Live in hope. Live in holiness. Live in reverent fear. Uh, and then in verse 22, the fourth command is to love one another completely, radically, out of a pure heart. And then the last commandment that he gives is in chapter 2, uh, verse 2. Uh, as, newborn, as newborn infants crave the pure spiritual milk. Crave the pure spiritual milk. So there's five. Got it. 
So now let's take them on uh, one at a time. Let's see if we can get through these in, in a decent time. So he says, therefore, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober, hope completely in the grace which is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's commandment number one. Hope completely in the grace which is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he opens with the statement, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober. But those aren't commands. Those are modifying phrases. The command is hope completely. Well, how do you do that? Well, you gird up the loins of your mind. Do you know the image of girding up your loins? I'm, I'm not sure that's an idiom that translates that well into the, into the modern uh, vernacular. So look at your translation there and see if, the, if your translation is trying to... There's several things you can do with an idiom. Uh, you can just leave it literal as it is in the biblical text, and then somebody's got to explain what that idiom means and, and what it meant. Or sometimes your translation will try to translate it into a modern idiom that means the same thing. Or sometimes they just dump the idiom and just say what they think it means. So what do you have there? How many of you have gird up the loins? You actually see gird the loins, okay? Who's got something else? What's yours have? Prepare your minds. By preparing your minds, you can hope completely. Now, uh, that's a nice translation of what I think he means by girding up the loins of your mind. Who's got something other than like prepare your mind? Is that, that going to be it? So what's it mean to gird up the loins? Well, I can't gird up my loins right now because I'm not wearing the right kind of garment. But if I had like a longer robe, like people in the ancient world would have worn, uh, a lot of you uh, ladies would know this better than, than I would, but it, it can be difficult to run gracefully if you have on like a long skirt or, or dress, right? So how, how do you fix that? Well, you can gird up your loins, uh, which is, if I can recall, you, you gathered it all together like this. You brought it up through your legs like this and then tie it up here or tuck it in. So now... Uh, I'm not saying it's, it's not like having running shorts on, but it's better. You can function at least. So it's like prepare yourself, whether it's for battle or for the athletic competition or just to run from something that's chasing you. Uh, if you need the girding up the loins, uh, girding your loins is a sign of prepare yourself. To gird up the loins of your mind uh, is to prepare your mind. Now, here's a, here's a modern Way that we do. Here's a, here's a modern idiom. Prepare your mind is just translating it. Here's a modern idiom that I think means the same thing. What am I doing? Ah, how about that? Roll up your sleeves. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. It's like I'm, I'm going to get to work. Roll your sleeves up and get to work. That works because we have sleeves. So you can roll up your sleeves. If we had long uh, gowns, we could gird up our loins. So we'll just roll our sleeves up and get to work. But it's about mental preparation. So before the command, hope completely, he starts with prepare your minds uh, and be sober, which is another idiom. It's a way it, it, it talks about it, both of these speak of mental discipline, mental clarity, that if you're going to maintain hope in your present situation of persecution, alienation, hostility, suffering, it's going to require some uh, mental discipline. 
And so this is where he begins. By girding up the loins of your mind, preparing your mind and being sober, hope completely in the grace which is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's the second time he's talked about the revelation of Jesus Christ. You remember back there in verse 7? When, when your faith is tested and shown to, to demonstrate it to be pure, it will be praise and honor and glory for you at the revelation of Jesus. So here it's grace which is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus. So hope completely. You can have hope. You can be hopeful. Because it's not only grace in the past and grace in the present. There's grace in the future. Grace all the way. And this promise of grace allows us to have hope. What if you didn't have hope of the future? What if, like a lot of Greeks and Romans, you had this sort of murky uncertainty about what might happen after death? Or what if you knew the possibility existed that you might face a God at death and he would have requirements of you that you were not willing to meet? How about that? What about if you worried about facing the God or the gods and you worried about facing God or the gods and they would have requirements or expectations of you that you, you didn't meet or couldn't meet? Would you have hope for the future? Or what if you just feared that you were going to face an angry, wrathful God at death? Could you have hope? Nope. How about this? The God that we, we will face in the future, the God we will face at, at and after death is a God of grace. And grace is coming. Grace is on the way. And that's good news. Not just grace in the past. We, we think about, we almost speak about grace as if it's past tense. Like God showed me grace, like that day when you were 13 then. Well, how about every day since then? And how about in the future? We need grace all the way, and here's the promise of it. And, and the promise of grace allows us to be hopeful, to hope completely. Uh, not only in the present, uh, but also in the future. So there's one of these you know, funny little stories about a man dying, and he goes to the pearly gates, and guess who he runs into? Peter, the author of this letter. And, uh, and his scribe. And, and, and the man says, um, I'm so glad to see you. You know, do I get into heaven? And Peter says, well, we're going to get a list here. I want you to list every good deed, every positive thing you can think of that you've done. And my scribe's going to write it down and assign a point value. And when you get to a thousand points, you get in. And the man's feeling really good about things because he lived a really moral life, a good life. He felt like a good Christian life. So he, he, he knew this was going to be easy. So he starts off listing things. You know, I was married to the same woman for 50 years and never cheated on her, not even in my mind. Peter says, that's impressive. The scribe writes it down. Two points. Oh, well, um, I taught Sunday school for 35 years. I checked on those people in the class. When they were sick, I went and visited them. I helped the pastor. I, I did everything I could possibly do. Studied for my lesson. That's very impressive. That's two more points. Well, I've tithed regularly. 
Uh, I've visited, uh, made evangelistic visits, brought my Bible to church every Sunday. That's fantastic. That's three more points. And now he's really, he's listed everything he can. It's just two points here, two points there. He finally gets down to, he worked at a soup kitchen and, uh, and he served Thanksgiving meals at the YMC or at the, at the Salvation Army. And, and he's coming up with everything he can. And he's getting a point here and a point there. And finally at the end, he's far, far from a thousand points and he's got nothing else. And he says, oh my goodness, I'm a man undone. Please, God, show me mercy. And Peter says, that is a thousand points. You know, this idea that somehow we could, we could build up this equity and that, that would be sufficient. No, that, that's not how it works. It's grace. It's not going to be my ability to, to make my case at the end of why God ought to. It's grace. And if it were anything other than grace, I would, I would think our hope might be tempered by um, a good bit of uncertainty. But here is grace. And grace in the future. And because of that, we can hope completely. That's the first commandment. The second one in verses 14 through 16 is to live in holiness. So live in hope, live in holiness. As children of obedience, do not be conformed uh, to your former lusts and your ignorance. But according to the one who called you holy, you yourselves be holy in all conduct. For it is written, you be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. Uh, and of course, this is a Leviticus citation, Leviticus 11.44, about God's holiness. So now we're to a command to be holy, which is a tricky command. Uh, I think holiness is something that we, we, we struggle to understand because the tendency is to think of holiness as, as like a check, checking off a box of requirements, you know, of, of like here's a checklist of do's and don'ts from the Bible, and I can check a lot of these, and if I check a certain percentage, then I'm holy. That, that it's about me achieving some status uh, of moral purity by my own moral effort. And, and we, we joke about it. You know, we, we call people saints if we think they're extraordinary Christians in their behavior. You know, somebody who lives a, a life that's very distinct, we might say, oh, this one's holy. This one's a saint. And the, the New Testament does not reserve the, the, the tag saint for people who only live exemplary lives. In the New Testament, you are a saint because you are one of God's people. You are called saints already, all of you, if you're a believer. And I mean, who would be here at 4.30 tonight if you weren't a true believer? <laughs> So if you are a believer, then you are a saint. You know, we don't need the checklist to say, well, somebody can't say, well, I, I know this person. They're not checking enough boxes. No, sainthood doesn't work like that. You are a saint. So what does it mean to be a saint? It means to be set apart from something and set apart for something. And in this context, to be a saint means to be set apart from our former way of life, our former lusts, our former behaviors, and to be set apart for God. It's not, it's not enough to just leave things behind. It's leaving them behind for God. Now, that's what New Testament holiness is about. 
We are set apart. God has put his name on us. He has put his seal on us, his stamp on us. We belong to him. The Sabbath was holy under the Lord, right? How's that? How is the day of the week holy if it's about doing things? Does the Sabbath day check the box of obedience to God? Is that why it's holy? The priests were holy. Did that mean the priests in ancient Israel didn't commit sins? We can give Peter at the end of this letter says, greet one another with a holy kiss. What's a holy kiss? I mean, if I asked you what's an unholy kiss, you might could, you might could give me that, some definitions of that. But how about a holy kiss? What is that? The Sabbath is holy because it's not like other days. It's set apart. Its activities are different than all the other days. How about a priest? A priest is set apart for God's purposes. It, it's not about behavior. It's about being set apart. Bread in the temple was called holy. Not because it was obedient bread, but because it was set apart from common purposes for God's purposes. Now you be holy, he says. Be set apart from your former way of life, but set apart for God. So that's who you are, you're saints. Now, be that. And, and that's the way New Testament holiness works. You are saints. He calls you saints. He has called you to be holy. Now be that. And the motivation for it is not so I can build up enough points at the end and get into heaven. The motivation is God has bestowed his grace upon me. He has called me holy. And now I want to live up to that. It's the greatest motivation for obedience that I know. It's gratitude. Not, not fear. We're gonna, he, he does talk about that in a minute. But I think biblical holiness, holiness at its heart is a desire to be the person that God has already made us to be. To live up to it. Out of gratitude to God. There's a great story in, um, in a book. Let me, let me get the title of the book. It's a Philip Yancey book. I don't like to give an illustration if I don't give you the title of the book. I'm about six pages behind in my notes here. Um, Reaching for the Invisible God by Philip Yancey. He tells a story there uh, about Arun Gandhi, who was the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. Um, and when he was a teenager, he just, just learned to drive. And his dad told him, so this would be Mahatma Gandhi's son, told his son, Gandhi's grandson, I need to go into town tomorrow. I want you to drive me. I want you to drop me off at a meeting. Uh, and then I want you to take the car to a garage in town where it's all, they're waiting on it. You can, you can play in town. You can do whatever you want in town for the day. But I want you to pick the car up at like 5 o'clock and I want you to pick me up at 6 o'clock sharp. And Arun, that's the grandson, was very pleased to do this. Uh, one, driving was fun for him. He hadn't been driving very long. And he looked forward to opportunities to be free in the city for the day. So he did. He dropped his father off. He goes into town, drops the car off in the garage, and he starts to enjoy his day. Well, he enjoyed it a bit too much, and he lost track of time. 
So he's supposed to pick his father up at six. He was supposed to pick the car up at five. He was at least 30 minutes behind on, in everything. And he, he arrived at 6.30 to pick up his dad. And, he, and his dad got in the car. He said, Dad, I'm so sorry. He said, I went by early to get the car, but they were slow getting it ready. I had to wait an hour for the car, and that's why I'm late picking you up. And his dad did the same thing. And it was several miles. It was maybe 10 miles to back to, to, their, to their home. And about six miles from home, his, his dad asked him to pull the car over on the side of the road. And his dad told him that he'd called the garage earlier in the afternoon to make sure the car was going to be ready on time. And they assured him it was already ready early. So he knew that his son had lied. And he said, son, I'm saddened and I'm trying to, trying to discern what kind of father I've been that would cause you to fear that you could not tell me the truth. So it was getting dark. He told uh, his son that he was going to get out of the car and he was going to walk home. And he wanted his son to drive behind him with headlights on and provide light for him. And he was going to think about this as he walked home. Several hours later, they arrived home. And as Arun, the young man driving the car, tells the story, he never lied to his father again. And it's not, it wasn't that he feared him, it wasn't because he had given him this command not to lie. It was out of respect and love for his father. The way he saw it affect him when he lied to him, he never wanted to do that again. That captures something of the idea of, of be holy in the New Testament. It, it's out of a desire to please a God who's been so gracious to us, who's already called us holy. Now be that. So that's the second command, be holy. Now the third command is in verse 17, and this is probably the, uh, the toughest one of the bunch, especially in light of everything else I've just said. He says, and if, if you call Father, the one who judges impartially the work of each one, then live the time of your immigration or your sojourn or your exile in fear because you know that you were redeemed out of this feudal manner of life you inherited from your ancestors, not by corruptible things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot and without blemish who was chosen from the foundation of the world. Now, all that, here's the command. Live in reverent fear of God. That sounds like I've talked about a God for which there's no nothing to fear. And yet here's a reminder that the God that we call Father is also the judge. The judge before whom everyone will stand and give an account for the way they conducted their lives. So this God should also be feared. Now, what's the nature of the fear? That's the question that begs to be asked. What kind of fear are we talking about here? Because the Greek word wabos can mean terror. Should we be terrified? Should we live our lives in terror at the thought of standing before God? Well, if he'd only called God Father, then I'd say absolutely not. 
I mean, because of the Father's love, there's no need to, to live in terror. If he'd only called God judge, I might tend towards that idea of terror. The thought of standing before a judge guilty is terrifying. That would be like nightmare scenario. You're standing before the judge. The judge knows you're guilty. There's no getting around it. There's no suppression of evidence. You're guilty. That's a, that's a terrifying thought. But he doesn't just call him father, and he doesn't just call him judge. He says, if you call father, the one who judges. <laughs> and so he mixes these two images. And it seems to me that the overriding image here is if you call father. And the fact that I think the emphasis is on father and on fatherly discipline, the sense of this is not terror, but it's more reverent fear or respect. All. So, in what, why, why live in reverent fear of God? And your, does your translation say reverent fear there in verse 17? Does, does it just say fear? If you've got reverent fear, there's no word in Greek for reverence. That is attempted to explain what kind of fear this is. And, I, and I'm saying to you, I, I like that. I like that, sense, that translation of reverent fear. There's no way you're going to convince me that we should live in terror of standing before God if we are his children. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 28 would be a nice companion verse to look at with this. Little children, abide in him. There's that image of little children, like there's the father image again. Little children abide in him in order that when Christ appears, we might have confidence and not be ashamed before him when he appears. So somehow there's no contradiction here in, on the one hand, having confidence in standing before God, but on the other, having reverent fear. I can't make sense out of terror. I can make sense out of reverent fear. So I think ultimately the root of our obedience or our, of our, the way we should live is to recognize the utter, absolute awesomeness of God. Something we don't often, I think, talk about. When I say God is awesome, I can get amen to that. Like I can say, how about amen? God is awesome. So you amen me on that because everybody agrees with me on that. God is awesome. But what's that mean? We throw the word awesome around. We talk about the dump Westbrook had, you know, yesterday. With, well, that was awesome. We, we talk about a cup of coffee and call it awesome. Or a piece of cake. That was awesome. Just the common things. We say, we say everything's awesome. So you use the word on everything. And then you say God is awesome, and it doesn't mean very much. Or at least it loses much of its power. It sort of reminds me of, and I'm not recommending this movie, but Fast Times at Ridgemont High, there's a character in that, Jeff Spicoli. If you're from a certain generation, you'll get this. And when, and when I hear the word awesome, I think of him saying, awesome, totally awesome. And of course, he's not talking about a tasty wave or his, his not so uh, good teacher, Mr. Hand. But nevertheless, it's not, it's not that. that. That distorts the idea when you come around to say, God is awesome. So let me think of it in these terms. Think of the power of a tsunami. Great and terrible, with the power to take the lives of 200,000 people. 
Don't think of just the goalie. Totally awesome. No. Think of the might of two million American soldiers with 6,000 tanks, 14,000 aircraft, 70 submarines, and nearly 7,000 nuclear warheads. Think of the heat of the sun, I think something like 15 million degrees. Think of these things and then realize these things are not worthy to be compared with the awesomeness of God, with the power of God. April the 12th, 1981, I had the privilege of observing what I believe was the first launch of the space shuttle, the space shuttle Columbia. My uncle was a, an engineer for NASA, and my, my mother and grandmother and I went to Florida to actually be at Cape Canaveral for the launch. And I was, I was a sophomore in high school, I think. <coughs> so we made the trip to Florida. I remember driving out there, and I actually rode out to Cape Canaveral with my cousin in a Jeep with some of his friends. And I, I remember as a sophomore what a great time we had because everybody, I mean, it was packed. People tried to get out. Cape Canaveral, that didn't really make for large numbers of people traveling out there for the launch. So people are just swerving in and out. They're getting off on the side of the road and yelling and screaming and uh, gesturing at one another, sometimes not so nicely. But, but I remember the drive out there being a whole lot of fun. I remember getting to the place where we were going to watch the launch. And, and people were, you know, playing and having a good time and probably some of them drinking even though it's early in the morning. And then I remember things start to get time for the launch. And I can still remember the rumbling of the ground and that white uh, exhaust smoke coming out and it lifting off and you could feel it in your bones and we weren't that close to it. It just shook the ground and shook you in your bones and then you see it streaking up in the sky and the fire emanating from behind it. If you're looking for something that's awesome, that's a good picture of it. What I also remember is in the moments after that, how quiet everyone was. There was just this feeling that you'd seen something and you should just be quiet for a moment. And I remember the drive back wasn't quite as exuberant, and people weren't gesturing at each other in the same way they might have been going in. It was just this different experience. We'd experienced something that was genuinely awesome, and, and even if for a moment we were different. When I say God is awesome, it is this sense of awe that inspires us to live in a certain way. Before a God like this. And, and I have a great concern about Christianity in America. That we lack distinction from everybody else in the world. We look a lot like everybody else. We act a lot like everybody else. There's just not enough distinction from the world. Perhaps in too many ways. In doing a good thing and emphasizing the love and the grace of God. We failed to emphasize the fact that God is also an awesome God who should be feared. And to just talk about the, if you only talk about the love and grace of God, you're missing something about the nature of God because this awesome side of God, this fear of God is like the other side of the coin. 
And to truly appreciate God's love and God's grace, it's necessary to also recognize what kind of God he is. He is a God that should be feared. Um, you probably know the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, volume 4, The Silver Chair, is, a, is, is a, a book that has the character Jill in the story. And she comes to be very close to Aslan, who is the lion, you know, the Lord in, in the Chronicles story. And her first encounter with him, though, she's, she's not yet built trust in him. And I think C.S. Lewis captures this, this awesomeness of God very well in this scene. She's very thirsty, and she's walking towards the, the stream. She can hear the water rolling in the stream. And if you're thirsty, you know how appealing that is. And so she's making her way to the stream to get a drink. And as she approaches, she sees Aslan sitting right next to the stream. And I mean, huge and menacing and Awesome. Are you thirsty? Asked the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Asked Jill. The lion answered with only a look and a growl. Will you promise not, not to do anything to me? Jill asked if I come. I make no promises, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty that by now she would, she had taken another step closer, nearer to the stream. Do you, do you eat little girls? I've swallowed up girls and boys, women, men, kings, emperors, cities, and realms, said the lion. And he didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jim, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. The one we call Father is also the one who will judge the worth of each one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of obedience. Proverbs says in 1 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 8 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. In Proverbs 16 16, by steadfast love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. So live our lives in reverent fear. Why? Because our God is an awesome God. Now, he finishes this thought in verse 18. So on the one hand, we should live our lives with this kind of fear because our God is an awesome God. But how about verse 18? Because you were redeemed out of your futile manner of life, you inherited from your ancestors, not by corruptible things like silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. It's a lamb without spot, without blemish. So here's the second reason that he says we should live forever fear. Because the blood of Christ is precious. I would have expected that Peter would have said, because you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, you shouldn't fear anything. You've got nothing to fear. But instead, he says, because you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, you should live in reverent fear. So what should we fear? Now, I hinted at it this morning. 
Maybe we should fear treating the precious blood of Christ as if it weren't precious. That would be to fall back into your former patterns of life. That would be to fall back in the way you lived your life before you were part of the people of God. Before you called upon the name of Jesus. Before you identified yourself with Christianity. To keep falling back into those patterns of life is to treat the blood of Christ as if it's not precious. Maybe that's what we should do. Now that's three. Now I've got to finish these other two before we eat. You're not that hungry, are you? Hey, it's two. These are quick. Verse 22. Because you have purified your lives in obedience to the truth, leading to a sincere brotherly love, love one another completely out of the pure heart. Because you were born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the living and abiding word. So here's the command. It's command number four. Love one another completely. Love one another radically out of the pure heart. Command four. Are you surprised that anybody in the New Testament, when giving a list of commands about what it looks like, to be the people of God in the world. Even if you're immigrants and refugees, you're, di- you're going to be different. Are you surprised that there will be a command to love one another? It is the consistent command throughout Old and New Testament. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, uh, Mark 12. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Amen. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's quoting the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. And that just keeps rearing its head throughout the New Testament. That we are to love one another. John says this is the characteristic mark of the people of God. That we love one another. All the way through the New Testament. So here it is. But the way Peter states it is unique. Love one another completely. Maybe, how about this? Radical. Out of a pure heart. Here's radical love. Love that loves. Not out of greed. Not out of self-gratification. And not for my own glory. When you love someone... And you love them not because you get a benefit from it. But you love someone. You want the best for them. You're willing to sacrifice what's best for you. For what's good for the uh, the other person. That's the kind of love that Peter is talking about. He uses the word agape. It's a verb. But it it is a word that's often used to describe God's love. Self-giving. Self-sacrificing. Sacrificial kind of love. And not just for people who love you. Not just for the people who love you back. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. Yeah, I'm talking about the person who stands outside your office cubicle and talks, 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 and you're sitting there knowing they need to get to work and they're distracting you from work. And they do this every day. I see some of you nodding your heads. You know that person. I'm talking about the teenager 
who shows very little gratitude for all you do for them and even seems to resent it when you try to guide them in the direction they should go. I see more of you nodding your heads. I'm talking about that Facebook friend who keeps sending you candy crush invites. <laughs> see, you, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, I've got a good example here of, uh, of what may, may be the height of the person that might frustrate you. Uh, it's the person on Twitter who humble brags. Okay, you know what a humble brag is? Well, let me give you an example of it. This would, this would be it. Here's a humble brag. Somebody tweets this. This is so unfair. Why did the Lambo, that'd be Lamborghini, dealership not tell me I'd get pulled over twice a week in this car? Time for a Corolla? It's like, okay, we know you have a Lamborghini. You don't have to keep tweeting about how hard it is to get pulled over twice a week in your Lamborghini. You know, it's like um, somebody, some celebrity tweets, this red carpet is so hard to walk on. Oh, that's a humble brag. I'm, I'm talking about loving those people. And even worse, I'm sure people Peter would have in mind and the people that this audience would think of are far more disgraceful, despiteful to them than these. It's far more difficult to love than what I'm talking about here. These are people who were persecuting them, who were alienating them, who were wishing them harm and doing them harm. We're to love them radically, out of a pure heart. Not for what we get out of it. And that's the kind of love that characterizes the Christian existence. And then the last one is in chapter 2. He says, verse 1, Stripping away all evil and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, as newborn infants crave the pure spiritual milk. So here's the last commandment. Here's number 5. Live in longing for the goodness of the Lord. Um, on the one hand, we could say, Jesus satisfies our every longing. But on the other, wouldn't we say we still long for more? More of the presence of Christ, more of the kingdom of God to come, more of the fullness of our salvation to be made known. At the, at the, at the, it's a, the interesting thing is, on the one hand, we can be satisfied, but on the other hand, we can long for much, much more. And I think that's the idea here of live in longing for the pure spiritual milk. He says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, what's the pure spiritual milk? I just skipped over verses 23 and 24 and 25, but he's talking about the word of God, the word of the Lord, the gospel. So that's part of it. But also when he says in verse 3, if you taste that the Lord is good or the goodness of the Lord or the kindness of the Lord. So what are we to crave? I think we're to crave the, the goodness of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord. Well, how about the word? Well, well, how do you experience the goodness of the Lord? How do you experience God's kindness, God's goodness? Through the word. So we crave the pure spiritual milk. That is the goodness of the Lord through and by the word of God. We're to crave it. We're to long for it. I mean, as newborn infants, what do newborns need? They need a lot of things. But one of the things they need is milk. And not sour milk. 
They need their mother's milk. And then they get a little bit older. They get to be two and three and they need milk and they need, they don't need sour milk. They need bronze milk then. You know, that's the milk that never grows old. It's eternal. It lasts forever, just like the word. I'm not kidding. I'm sort of kidding. But have you ever poured out any bronze milk? I can't recall ever. It doesn't go back. I don't we should test it to see does it ever expire? Because it's always good. But I, we don't ever pour it in or out. If you get in a fix and you have to buy milk somewhere else, it will sometimes it smells bad before the expiration date. Not problem. That's kind of the pure milk, but it's not the pure spiritual milk. And if you're gonna pour milk on your lucky charms, make it bronze. That's what I would say. But it, it, it is this longing for something that is more. Uh, I wouldn't sing it for you, but uh, you remember the uh, Rolling, Stone song, Rolling Stones song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. I'm sure that song was somewhat scandalous when it was first played on the radio. I think that's like the first number one hit in the U.S. That's a, that's a, that's a biblical idea there. We can't get no satisfaction from all the things we try to get satisfaction from. All of our longings and our appetites, we try to, we try to satisfy them with success and with stuff, with food, with drink, with sex, with sleep. And, and those things inevitably leave us feeling somewhat unsatisfied. So fill in the blank. If I just had more blank, I'd be satisfied. Right? No, you wouldn't. How about if I just had that Blank. I'd be satisfied. Now, most of my life has been marked by longing for someday. When I, when I was in college, I thought, if I could just finish my education, then, like then, life would be as I wanted. I'll have all I want. I'll have what I'm longing for. And, and then God played that dirty trick on me that caused me to go for nine more years after college uh, to Southwestern. And all that time, I'm thinking, if, when I, if I just finish my education, if I can, if I can, if I can just get married, then, then I'll be satisfied. If I can just get on a teaching position, then, if 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 we can just have kids, then, if we can just get these kids out of the house and live at a level you know that we'd like to live, then. One of the gifts of maybe later midlife, you know, after I'm grandpa now, it's starting to get me. I'm coming to terms with the reality that someday is not coming this side of heaven. I've also come to realize this is true spiritually. In my relationship with Christ, it's not that I can't get no satisfaction because there's great satisfaction in Christ. However, there is a sense in which I long for more. More of his presence, more of his will, more likeness to him, more of his kingdom come, more of my heavenly home. There's always a hunger for more. He commands us to crave and long for the goodness of the Lord that we access through the living and abiding word of God. And the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, describes a person in heaven like this. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. 
I've done a couple marathons and I'm not humble bragging. And I learned something in, in those experiences that no matter how elite you are as a runner, when you finish 26.2 miles, you are exhausted, you are hungry, and you are thirsty. It doesn't matter if you're a two hour and six minute marathoner or an eight hour marathoner. When you finish 26.2 miles, you are exhausted, you are hungry, and you are thirsty. John seems to be saying, when you finish this pilgrimage, this sojourn, this period of your immigration, and you arrive at your heavenly home, you will arrive hungry and thirsty. And then, and only then, will that longing be completely and fully satisfied. But until that day comes, stay thirsty. 